Well, I think that there's almost no bigger question of life is asking this question of value, purpose. What is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? Am I valuable? Am I worth anything? Where does my value come from? Should I value other people? Should I value them? This is the topic of a lot of our conversations today, a lot of the cultural issues that we are going through. And so we're going to have this conversation talking about really, well, this book, Why You Matter. My guest, Michael Sherrard, joining me here, is a teacher, a pastor, pastor of Cross Point Community Church, a speaker for the Life Training Institute and faculty member at Summit. And again, as I just showed you, written this book, Why You Matter, How a Quest for Meaning is Meaningless Without God. So first of all, Michael, thank you for showing up and joining me in this conversation. Ryan, are you kidding me, man? It's good to see you. It's been a long time. Thanks for having <laughs> me on. It has been. Yeah, Mike joined man, quite a while ago. You have another book called Relational Apologetics. We discussed that one back when it was only podcast a few years ago, uh, but really really now have put out this book. And, and as I read through it, and I just got done sharing with you, and what I want to stress to those who are listening and watching is I felt like this book is just phenomenal at doing two things is what I want to focus on in our show today is, is helping us understand how the Christian worldview fits so well into what's happening in our cultural moment of, of, of seeing people with value, of understanding this life without God is meaningless and why really what we desire is this meaningful life and that's found truly in the Christian worldview. Uh, but then the second kind of aspect is how the when you finally live out your true meaning and purpose and who God has designed you to be, it really does produce the best life, the life filled with joy. Mm -hmm. And your chapters point that out of like the joy in identity, the joy in your calling, the joy in serving other people, the joy in loving people. Because really like we want is not just this question of, are we asking is Christianity true, but also people are asking the question, is Christianity good? And I think that this answers both of those questions so well. And so uh, I'm, have, I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation with you and to, to be able to dig deeper into this topic and have you share kind of your heart behind this. Um, and if you are, though, joining for the first time, listening or watching, my name is Ryan Pauly. This is a weekly show. Took a week off last week. Had a break for spring break, but we are back. Weekly show discussing aspects of the Christian worldview, what Christians believe, uh, learning how to defend it well, and then faithfully living it out. And so if that's interesting to you, uh, you can subscribe, check it out, and keep watching. More conversations coming up. So, Mike, let me just ask you this. Um, I told you, uh, I just told my students today, I'm like, man, if I could make you students watch, uh, read this book, I would. Uh, this, I think, is phenomenal for the high school, college student who's trying to figure out what their purpose in life is, what should they do, how do they find a job, where their meaning and value comes from, as well as understanding this kind of cultural moment. So, as I read the book, that's kind of what I size as the target audience. And I'm just curious, am I... Am I anywhere near close to being right on that? Uh, kind of who, why are you writing this book and, and who are you writing it for? Yeah. yeah, well, I had a couple of people in mind when I wrote the book. I had um, one of my neighbors in mind, good man, older man. And I had him in mind when I was writing this book. Uh, someone who maybe, I don't really know what their church background was. My impression is, um, just a normal kind of guy, works hard, maybe hasn't thought a lot about theological or philosophical ideas. So I'm, I'm, I have him in mind. The other person I had in mind was the, the person that you're talking about, that 16 to 24 year old guy or girl, maybe a little bit skeptical, not one that's, you know, is looking for simplistic answers. They want true answers. They want thoughtful answers. 
And they're the kind of student, for example, that would frequent summit ministries, you know, that I do a lot of work with. And so, yeah, I had kind of two people in mind. I really wanted to write this for just your everyday kind of person, someone that doesn't have any kind of philosophical or theological background or training, a book that they could pick up and, and really uh, get something out of. But I also wanted it to be a book where that really hardcore skeptic is going to pick this book up and not feel like I'm pulling any punches, taking any shortcuts, creating any straw men. So really offer um, a simple but robust argument for what makes life meaningful. And I think, and I, and I saw that and I always hesitate kind of saying this on a show when I read this and I go, man, the concepts in here are, are so basic. Anyone could read it. It sounds like it's like elementary or something like, oh, well, I've been a Christian my whole life. Why should I read it then? Uh, but I didn't get that. Like, as I was talking through it with my wife and saying like, look, like it's, it's kind of like that sermon that you've heard before and you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, you're supposed to know these ideas, but like, as I read it, I'm just like, Oh, that's so good. Oh, that's so good. And I'm just highlighting and I'm thinking, who needs to know this? How can I include this? And that's kind of some of the questions I have for you is like, as adults, if we're adults watching, how can we use this material to teach our kids? Because that was in my mind too, is like, this is so important that I don't realize how I'm missing it. But also it's written in a way, like you said, where it makes a strong case for Christian theism, Christian the Christian worldview um, against the meaninglessness of life without God at the same time is, is done so in a way that's so accessible and I think very practical. Uh, and so I definitely saw that. And so I'm curious as well, kind of why this book is written now. Um, how is it that this understanding of why we, why our lives are valuable, how can that kind of help us as Christians living in kind of the state of our world today? How does it apply to today? Yeah, well, it's funny is the wrong word to use, of course, but just the timing for this book and how, and how it came about and about and first man, just thanks, Ryan, <laughs> that, that <laughs> those are very kind words. And, um, I, I mean, I stress is probably the right word a lot over this book because of the opportunity and, and what is needed right now. I really felt that burden of this is the message for our time. The Lord has given me an opportunity to speak into this and I didn't want to screw it up. And the book, it's not the book that I thought I was going to write. Um, and uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm getting to your question. Maybe I'm not coming at it the way that, that, that you set it up. But um, when I first kind of pitched the book, it was really in just kind of a worldview and apologetic kind of abstract realm. And when I wrote the first words, like the very first sentence, everything changed for me because I had in my mind a young man or a young woman who has this book in their room at night and they're having a hard time thinking about a reason to get up in the morning. And instantly this book had to become more pastoral and real practical. So where this really where the idea from the book came, I'll back up now. So the book has a lot of a pastoral you know, tone to it as much as it has an apologetic or a worldview one. But the idea came years ago. Um, I know the title, Why You Matter, may make it seem like it was written in response to current events, you know, right. in the world of Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter. Um, and it wasn't. The title even predates some of the, uh, um, the prominence of these, these movements. Uh, but the idea for the book came probably four years ago. And I was sitting in a Sunday school classroom with some good friends, people that have grown up in the church, people I respect, look up to even in terms of Christian witness and how am I to live my life? And 
I, I forget the exact topic of that morning, but what I do remember is that every person in the room that I was surrounded with was thinking in the I am that which I do box. They had adopted an entirely secular understanding of what it is to be human and where our value comes from. They could not get out of I am that which that which I do. And what seemed apparent to me was that the, the idea of being made in God's image and a biblical anthropology had, was completely lost. Right. And um, so I started to explore this, this hunch, this idea, how pervasive is this? How much has the church forgotten a very simple idea? So you're not wrong when you say this is a book that anybody can read. I, I'm, it's very simple. It's a simple idea. And sometimes simple ideas are the most important ones that we just forget. But so anyways, I started exploring this. How, how has the church kind of forgotten what it is to be made in God's image? And one of my first opportunities thereafter, I was invited to give a graduation, a commencement speech and whatnot. And this was at a, wasn't at a Christian school, it was just at a regular old school. And so there's going to be a mixed audience of Christians and non-Christians. And I only had a 15 minutes to give this speech. And I gave it on th this topic about what, about what makes life meaningful. And I had Christian and atheist alike coming up to me afterwards, like they had been given just um, water to a really thirst to someone who's really thirsty. Yeah. And so long and the short of this story is that idea began in the Sunday school classroom. Over the next couple of years, I began to really dive into this topic, speak more on it when I could. And then a couple of years ago, Summit Ministries came up to me and said, hey, is there a book you want to write? And this was the book. So, and then last thing, I'm getting long-winded here, Ryan, but the, from four years ago to exploring the idea, to sitting on Summit's porch and them asking if I have a book to write, to when the contract then comes down, to when then I can actually write this book, and then it released now in a time where the world is rightfully so obsessed with equality, but I think they have forgotten and lost the basis of why we are all equal and why we matter. I don't know that this book could be any more relevant, and it was in the Lord's timing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's kind of important to point out is, is that I did notice one like negative review online, and it was like the person picked it up thinking it was going to be addressing all of the equality issues that are happening right now. And, and this really does, like you said, kind of almost go deeper or, or, or have the, the more fundamental question of just a basic human anthropology from a Christian worldview uh, that then can apply to all of those issues and is so valuable, but is often the thing that is forgotten as we are debating and, 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 and pushing and against. But I think in the same way that I, what I hope that Christians can, can learn to do is that we see this idea of equality being such a huge thing in our culture. Everyone wants to talk about equality and the equality of all people and the value of all people, but this really borrows from a Christian worldview. And so, you know, I, I'm curious kind of as we kind of approach this practically in one sense of like, if, I guess I have two questions. I'll ask the first one. If we recognize people as being valuable, if we recognize people as being equal, why are we, why are we fighting? Why are we, why do we hate? Why do we still have this, I don't know, whatever inside of us where we look down upon the other political party or whatever, when at the same time saying, no, people are valuable. People are equal. Yeah, two reasons. One, just sin. I think we're, we will always struggle with that. Even if we truly believed and had a very good understanding of why we're all equally valuable, I still think just because of living in a world where sin is a reality, hatred is always going to be 
a part of this world. But I don't think people have a firm grasp on what makes us equal. We, we believe in it. Right? You won't find you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who is an open, adamant racist who thinks that right. you should treat people differently on the basis of some arbitrary characteristic. Right. You would be hard pressed to find a sexist, someone that says we should treat women inferior to men on the basis of their gender. You're not going to find that person. So most people today will believe in the, the this principle of equality, that all human beings are equally valuable and there should be should be treated equally. But the question is, why are people equally valuable? If you don't have a firm answer to that, you may believe in equality, but you're, I think you're really going to have a hard time treating people equally when you don't know why we are equal. So I think I think that's it. And I don't know how far ahead we want to get in, in, in unpacking that, but I think it's a real problem that we're facing. Right. I think you'd already mentioned it, but we are moving away from a Christian foundation. We are moving away from a Christian heritage. Equality is a gift of Christianity because a part of Christianity is the belief that all human beings are made in the image of God and are loved by him. Human beings, therefore, in a Christian worldview, have intrinsic value, which means we are the kinds of things that are valuable for what we are in and of ourselves. We are an end in ourselves. We don't become valuable. We aren't valuable based on what we can do. We are valuable because of what we are, human beings made in the image of God and loved by him. That idea is a radical idea that really shaped the Western world. That's our heritage, at least here in the United States and much of the Western world. We're moving off that. We're, we're moving away from that. We're, we've killed off God in a sense. And when you kill God, other things die as well. What's still hanging out there is this belief in equality, but what's underneath it? Why are we really equal? And if we, as a society, don't have a good answer to that question, we may believe in equality, but we're also going to have a very hard time treating each other as equals. Yeah, and I think that's so important to point out in the sense of it kind of reminds me of kind of the argument of like, well, I can be a good person and not believe in God. And and the Christian response to kind of this moral argument is like, well, but if God didn't exist, there would be no good. Uh, and so we're asking about that foundational question. And so I'm curious kind of what you would say then to kind of maybe that objection is like, well, if someone says, I'm not a Christian, uh, I, I don't believe in God, but I do hold to human equality and, and I still can treat people well. Why is God necessary for this? Right. And it's it's that question. It's not, can I treat people well? It The question's more basic. What is What does it mean to treat somebody well? What is good? What is bad? If God doesn't exist, life is here simply because of an accident. If God does not exist, there is no inherent meaning to life. There is no purpose. What what is right and wrong in a universe lacking purpose? You know, right and wrong as we understand it means it's violating some standard. Well, in a universe without any meaning, what standard is being violated? Simply the standard that we have created for ourselves. It's entirely arbitrary in that sense. What is good? What is wrong? Uh, right and wrong, good and bad. It's entirely arbitrary. It's entirely subjective. So for that atheist that says, I don't need God to be good, I would I would answer, I agree with you. I think you can be good, depending on the theological understanding right. of what we mean by good. But I'm going to concede this for the, the conversation. I agree. You can be good without God. The question is, what is good if God does not exist? That right. is the really fundamental question. And that's really problematic for the atheist. Philosophers and ethicists have been trying for years to develop a system of ethics 
that can ground objective moral fact. It can ground moral facts and values in some kind of objective way. And it's really difficult to do. The pop atheists don't recognize that. The true intellectual giants of old did recognize that. People like Nietzsche, uh, people like George Orwell, um, they they recognize the challenge of trying to build a system of ethics without without the without God's existence. So yeah, that's where I would start. And I think it's important too to point out because you mentioned during that answer that you, t- you talked about there's no inherent meaning without God. And, and, you know, when I talk about this idea of there is no purpose, objective purpose or inherent meaning or inherent purpose without God, um, the common response is, well, I, I can have my own meaning. I can have my own purpose. And so I think I'd love to hear kind of your response to that on, well, people say, well, no, my, my purpose, my meaning of my life is to be nice to people and to love my family. Uh, that's good enough for me. Why do I need this inherent meaning, inherent objective purpose? It's good so far as somebody is able to truly believe that their actions are meaningful. That's the good and the bad of this. If you are your own standard for what is good and what is meaningful, you are the judge in a sense. Well, your meaningful life is going to hang in the balance of you being able to convince yourself that your actions really matter. Let me just tell a story to maybe make this point. So I was giving a, um, a lecture on this topic maybe a year or so ago. Well, more than that because it was pre-COVID. But uh, I had a young lady come up to me afterwards, college-age student, really bright, respectful, had a great conversation. She was an atheist. And she came up and she said, listen, I'm tracking with you. I, I agree that if God does not exist, then there is no ultimate meaning to life. There's no ultimate purpose. I'm paraphrasing a bit of what she said here, but this, this really captures pretty accurately what she, what she said. She said, but this is a freeing idea. If there is no standard beyond that which we create, it's a freeing idea. She said, life can be so stressful. From the moment you can talk, people are asking, what do you want to be when you grow up in life? She says, and they never stop asking that question. Get good grades so you can get into a good school. Join this club. Try that sport. Pick the, what's your pick a side on this cause, you know, and it just goes on and on and on. She says, so the idea that there's no ultimate meaning to life is freeing. Bake cookies, make millions, solve a justice problem, play video games in your mom's basement. It's all the same as long as you don't hurt anybody. So that's kind of your point. I can create my own meaning and this is freeing. This is good. But she said, and this was a very honest reflection on this, this topic from her. She said, it would be kind of nice to know, though, that my actions mattered in a way of greater significance than simply satisfying my arbitrary preferences. Yeah. Those weren't her exact words, but that was her point. And she says, and I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. She says, I don't believe in God, but I want to believe in God for this reason. Hmm. She's, she described perfectly, I think, the tension of, a, of living in the freedom and the futility of an atheistic universe where there is no transcendent standard to judge your actions. So for some, yeah, for some, they'll go through their whole life and they will set a standard for what is meaningful and they will live up to that standard and they're going to feel maybe perfectly fine about themselves. There's going to be a number of other people that set that standard, live up to that standard, but go, that is simply a standard I have made. There's no real meaning to that. I've just given it meaning, but who am I to give it meaning? I'm a cosmic accident. I'm a genetic mutant. Why is my inherently meaningful, meaningless life 
able to declare these actions as meaningful and now me really feel as if they are meaningful. I kind of really know they're not. And so that's what this young lady's problem was. She could see through it. She understood the freedom, but on the other side of that coin was the despair of all I will ever accomplish is living up to the arbitrary standards I or someone else set for me. Yeah. And, and to me, like I read that story and, and it like breaks my heart because I, I then read one of your kind of responses to this of like the purpose of life is just to pursue whatever we want to do, whatever makes us happy. And, and, and that's what makes our life meaningful. Yet we hear story after story after story of people who just live life doing whatever made them happy and, and seeking that personal pleasure. And they get to a certain point in life and they're like, hopeless they're lonely they're lost they commit suicide it's like what what does this life come to if i have all my money and i have my cars and i have my fame but i am still like empty because they think that is somehow going to fulfill them and it's like we're not learning from those other mistakes so i hear that and i go oh my heart breaks my heart breaks for people that that, that see that and hopefully trying to as that girl saw like there's something i'm trying to get meaning from and, and there's some true joy and beauty to that um now I, I want to that, that I want to focus on that kind of at the end of our conversation because I think there's so much beauty as you mentioned in the book and, and joy that comes from understanding a true identity and meaning that's found in Christ. I'm curious so on a couple other kind of preliminary things is how would you how do you go about then showing to that girl uh, that true meaning, true joy, the thing that she really does hope and look for and desire is found in Christ. How do you make a case for that to to the atheist, to the skeptic? Well, like with this young lady, for example, the case was made and she saw very clearly what was before her and it was left to her. And some will even, and this is just a, a fair point that I think is always good to make when we have apologetic discussions. And I'm not saying you were implying this, Ryan, but sometimes we have the expectation in apologetic kind of discussions of if I say the right thing, right. If I make the right case, then this person will automatically because how could they how could they not? And it just doesn't just doesn't happen like that. We're we're complicated people that even if we can sometimes we can know what's true and not want what is true. And so there there there's that. But the way I go about generally speaking, making this case is that people operate on the assumption that there is a real right and a real wrong. When people are pursuing a meaningful life, they are operating on the assumption that there are things that I can do that really matter. And I think most people believe that they matter in a transcendent way, meaning that their actions have greater significance than simply meeting a standard that they or society has created. I think this is something that is intuitively known. And I think the world, for example, if you just take morality right now. The Western world in the United States, people are acting as if there is a real right and a real wrong. It's right. why we march. It's why we protest. It's right. why we champion equal rights is that we really believe it is true. It is right with a capital T and a capital R that there is a way things are supposed to be. Yeah. But that only makes sense if there's a creator God that made life on purpose for a purpose. In an accidental universe, there is no way things should be. Right. And I love the illustration. I, as I was reading in your book, I was laughing hysterically because you talk about how it's it's this purpose. It's it's the meaning that is like what makes sports 
uh, fun to watch. It makes it makes them entertaining. And you give the illustration of like, what if a bunch of athletes just grabbed random sports objects and all went out to a field and started doing their own thing. And then you get done playing the game, whatever that is, people running around with different objects, just pure chaos. And someone goes, good job, well done. And it's like, and I think you wrote something like, well, what did I do? I just spun in circles, hitting, like punching something over and over again. And it's like, but you did it so well. It's like, that's meaningless in this pure chaos. If there's not this teleology, if there's not this end goal, if there's not this purpose, what are we doing? And I love that illustration of if there's no objective purpose, it's like grabbing and just being pure chaos. And then people saying, well done. You did that so good. It's like, I did what so good? Um, I think though, in a second way is, and I, and I love this illustration given by Sean McDowell, is I think we often confuse this idea of, um, of purpose and good and bad is, is like the difference between like objectively morally good and then like advantageously good, right? And so like the illustration of you're playing chess and it's a bad move in chess to, to, to lose your pieces and get put in checkmate. But if you change the rules of chess to where getting checkmated means you win, then it becomes a good move. And so I think that's kind of what you're talking about is we have these society rules and then we want to say that right and wrong is determined based on how you live in an advantageous, good or bad way according to those rules, but the rules are subjective and can change. But I don't think that accurately matches what we intuitively understand and, and even what we stand for, that it's just this good and bad based on these arbitrary rules society makes, like playing chess has good and bad moves based on the moves, rules of chess, but there's good and bad based on the rules of basketball or football, right? It's all different versus this objective standard of morality that we're seeing people crying out for in our culture. Right. I, I agree. Cause the question is, you know, what, what our atheist friends would say is you don't need this standard that goes beyond us. We can create it for ourselves, but I don't think that's what we really believe Now you will find the intellectually consistent atheist that will look at something like the Holocaust and say, it's not that it was wrong. It was just that they developed a different system that isn't like ours. And I'm sure you've met that person that will say, yeah, I can't say that what right. Hitler did was wrong in any objective sense. Right. But, I, you know, that the, I can really appreciate the intellectually consistent atheist. But I think you're right that the intuition of us all is that, no, 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 we don't agree that we've just created a system that we're all adhering to. We think that we have found a system of ethics that corresponds to right. something that is really real and that it is really wrong for you to treat people this way. It's not just because we've decided this is what's best. We really think this is the way things are supposed to be. But again, if this is the way things are supposed to be, that implies a creator and some standard that goes beyond us. And so you're right. I just I do not think that the quest for meaning in a godless universe is possible because we all at the end of the day know if there is no standard beyond us we have just created arbitrary rules that we've all decided to go along with with each other yeah. and that's a vain enterprise yeah yeah and so what i love that you've done here is you've you've addressed these issues right you've made a case for christian theism you've, you've addressed this meaninglessness of life without god um, but really kind of, I think, pointing to what we understand to be true and the meaningfulness of life. Um, you, you quickly kind of, you quickly switch, I think, to, as you mentioned at the beginning, a pastoral approach, then kind of reflecting on this on, on the inside, because we have this understanding of, of where 
value comes from, where our meaning comes from. Um, and it's either we create it or God does. And as Christians, we, we recognize like our, our value comes from God. It's not in our athletic abilities. It's not in our intellect. It's not in our jobs. It's not in our family. It's not in these things. Yet at the same time, we so easily put our value in these things. Right. And, and you mentioned here in the book, um, if I can find the quote here really quick, um, we deny it says, uh, I don't know if I paraphrased you or quoted you perfectly, but it's, but it says I have here, we deny that external factors give life meaning while at the same time feeling worthless in the absence of those things. And so I would love for you to just to speak into this of if we recognize it's God that gives us meaning. And we recognize that it's not these external factors, our performances that give ourselves meaning. Why do we so often feel meaningless, worthless when we don't have those external factors present? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think that um, we live in a time of worldview kind of borrowing where Christians are absorbing the ideas in the culture and they're just finding a home within their worldview. Atheists do the same thing, though they believe God does not exist. They have absorbed ideas from a worldview that he does exist. And uh, in the pluralistic world today with the smartphone, which is a portal to every idea there has ever been, right? Uh, it can be very hard to think clearly about things because we're influenced by ideas that should not have any room, uh, should not be able to go together, but, but, but do. And so this is one thing for Christians where you may have Christians that go, no, I, I hear it. I believe that I am made in God's image. I believe that that is the source of my value, that there's nothing greater. There's nothing greater about me. There's nothing more valuable about me than the fact that I am made in God's image and loved by him. You may believe that, but then you're, you're looking to some other standard. You're looking to, I've not done accomplished this in my life, or I made this mistake in my life. I don't have these relationships. I have failed in this, and you're holding up to some standard based on accomplishments, abilities, or relationship. And you're saying, because I do not have those things, my life is not as valuable as somebody else. And these are two ideas that can't exist. They should not exist. Either you are a man or a woman made in the image of God, thus instilled with unimaginable value and significance. Or you are a cosmic accident with a greater nature, with a nature worth nothing beyond which you can create for yourself. It's one or the other. It cannot be both. And so a lot of the, I think, the fight for joy in the pursuit of meaning is a mental battle. It's the fight to remember what is really real and to live in the reality of God's existence and not live in the one that you don't believe is actually real. Yeah. And it's this reality of God's existence that that I think points to something else that is so huge in this cultural moment that we're living in right now. And you talk this, now this is not a paraphrase, I am reading straight out of the book here. Uh, you say, some of us look at all that we've done and become arrogant and proud. Some of us look at the lack of what we have done and become anxious and depressed. All of us need to look to the Lord at, and at what he, at, sorry, and at what has us all equally valuable. This reality should bring humility to the proud and hope to the broken. And so um, I'd love for you just maybe to speak into this because again, like as Christians, we, we realize our, our, our value does not come from what we've done yet. When we've accomplished a lot, it makes us say, hey, oh man, look, I feel, you know, and so there's, 
there's a, a good sense of feeling good for what we've done and, and being uh, proud of what we have accomplished, right? But then there's obviously a different sense of being prideful. Um, at the same time, we then, as we just talked about, we look at how other people have done more, we haven't done very less, and allow this to make us depressed and anxious. Uh, but looking into Christ uh, equalizes this. Um, so I'm kind of curious yeah. if you could maybe speak into that and then maybe touch on that idea of being proud of what we've done, but not being prideful because that's kind of where our value comes from. Yeah, it's hard to be proud without being prideful. There's no doubt about that, but you should. You should be proud of accomplishments. You are allowed to be proud of other things in your life without becoming prideful. And key to that is understanding the source of our significance, and it is the fact that we are made in God's image. Yeah, it goes back to something we were talking about earlier where I think our society, right, we, we believe in equality, but we're having a hard time treating other people like that. I think personally, we all have that same struggle. We will believe in equality, yet we'll go through times in our life where we feel like we're better than other people, or we'll go through times in our life where we feel like we don't measure up. And again, that's where this idea is. It's a leveling kind of idea where it takes those of us that are arrogant because we look at what? You make more money than someone else? Great. They're made in God's image. So are you. You're really going to be impressed that you have six, You make $60,000 and you're the assistant to the regional manager and you're Dwight Schrute or whatever <laughs> that you think because of this accomplishment, you're worth some, somehow you're worth more than this other fellow image bearer. It's, it's a ridiculous idea. And whatever your accomplishment is, whatever your characteristic is, it pales in comparison to the fact that we are all made in God's image and are loved by him. So this really should take us down a notch or two. Those of us that really feel well, I'm important because I've done this, that, or the other. No, again, this goes back to you can be proud in what you have done, but don't become a prideful, arrogant jerk that thinks, wow, look at what I've done. I'm somehow better than everybody else. But also to the, the broken, right? To the person that is looking at everything they haven't done, the mistakes that they've made or the failure or the job, right? And you know that experience, right? Kid grief. When you meet somebody for the first time, and they ask, you, oh, so tell me about what you do. And then you tell them what you do. And their response is either, oh, cool, or, huh, that's interesting. And right there, a value judgment has been made that you feel. And you either feel more important and more valuable based on what you do, or you feel less valuable based on what you do. <clears throat> Excuse me. We've got to let go of that. Now, there's another idea related to this, and it is stewardship. We ought not to be cavalier about what we do, but what we do is not the source of our value and our significance. Yeah. Well, my goodness, um, you know, that just hit home for me right now because I think <laughs> there's an aspect of, of me that that just happened to me this last Sunday. I was visiting a church as I was visiting my brother, a uh, church that I had never been to, and um, pastor comes up and says, hey, what do you do? And I said, I'm a, I'm a teacher. And I'm like, hey, you should ask me what, you know, and in my mind, I'm like, ask me what I teach. Cause I can say, hey, I teach a historical Christian doctrine and apologetics. I teach a comparative religions and worldviews. And I teach a philosophy of ethics. You know, hey, look, look what I teach, right? You, you want to know, <laughs> you want to know me, right? And it's like, that was like the natural instinct that like comes up. And then there's other yeah. times where it's like, I'm a teacher. Please don't ask what I, I don't, I don't want to have that conversation right now. But it's like, it's, it's inherent to us. And so like, in my mind, I go, look, I know that happens to me. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm an exception, right? We're fallen human beings. That they, they can fallen fall human beings. And, and Satan loves to twist good things. 
We should take pride in what we do. We should. We should right. find enjoyment in it. And if you, you back up this conversation to something that's really foundationally important, as image bearers of God, he gave us dominion over this earth. It's ridiculous. He made this world and said, you take care of it in my stead. The freedom and the authority we have to manage and order and create the world that God has created is it's a ridiculous, unbelievable gift and calling we have. As we live out this calling in the various ways that we do as teachers, as mechanics, as janitors, as moms, as dads, as on and on and on and on and on, we should take great pride and find joy in it. And isn't it just like the enemy to twist something good and say, no, 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 the thing you do isn't something just to be proud of you exercising your gifts for the glory of God. No, that's the thing that makes your life actually worth something. Right. And other people are going to set the standard for which of these kinds of jobs and callings really matter. No, no, that's what makes you valuable. Not the fact that you're made in God's image, not the fact that you can glorify him by loving other people and cultivating this world that he has made. No, no, no. You're not a steward. You are one that has to create your value and you're going to do it through these things. And he's just going to twist it. And we all living in this broken and fallen world. We have to resist that temptation. And it's going to be something that we fight our entire lives. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's why I like, again, as I said at the very beginning, as I read this, it's like these true things, but my goodness, how often do we need to be reminded of this? Because it's so easy to say, man, uh, the YouTube channel is small. They have a bigger YouTube channel or they have a bigger church or their business makes more money. And it's just so natural. And I think maybe... Maybe in my mind, because I'm a very competitive person and I played sports. I know you were an athlete in high school too, and I played college baseball. And so, so much of it is competing, trying to and be right seen, there, trying to prove us. yourself. Right there, Ryan. Right there, you ranked us. High hey, you, school, college. You, I mean, what are you doing here? Did I say high school? I said you played baseball. I don't think I said what level. I don't know. <laughs> And I just interrupted See, you're, your flow. Man. You're assuming uh, you're assuming something about me, Mike. Come on, um, no, but <laughs> but again, like, and I just go, well, that's my competitive nature, and and I think there's aspects where I go, I I know I need to check it, right? There's times where I need people to to help, kind of point that out in me, uh, of when I'm putting too much into something rather than recognizing this as something good that I can use for God, and um, and then build from that, and I think. Now, kind of maybe skipping ahead, but going along this topic, there, there's a thing that you wrote, and I think it was one of the last pages I kind of read here. Um, but in this idea of finding joy in your calling, and there's a lot here, and maybe I'm skipping over and we'll come back to. But you, you talked about, uh, you have written here, it says, um, be humble, work hard, and go tell your story. And always remember, you do not work to earn value. You work because you are valuable and so are others. And there's aspects in this in this chapter on finding joy in your calling of that like sometimes, you know, being faithful where you are and that sometimes that um, that that work produces something good, right? And, and, I, and I'm thinking like right now I'm teaching it to my high school ethics class. We just started the chapter on poverty. Uh, and how, how do we ethically think about poverty? And, and it gives the example in the book about this guy who who saw poor people, uh, sought to, to help them, and then through helping them ended up funding this worldwide you know business that then is a multi-billion dollar business and, it, and it's helping bring people out of poverty. And it's like, you know, there's two different ways you can go about that. It's a selfish, I want to grow the biggest business, I want to make tons of money uh, type of 
way. And then there's times where people are just faithful, trying to serve, trying to help, and, and, it, and it grows and it becomes something huge and amazing. And, and we, we shouldn't take away from that. But again, it's checking ourselves as what is our goal? What is the purpose that we have in this and finding joy in that calling? Um, I just jumped way ahead. So now I just kind of lost track of my thoughts because I'm like, I don't have like necessarily notes, but I'm kind of working through what yeah, I remember. No, that's a, but yeah, that's go on a, that. A very, it's a very important idea that God, you should, you should honor God by stewarding the life he has given you. And some people have the ability to make a lot of money and serve a lot of people that way, to create wealth that can be used for a number of good things. And they should go do that for the glory of God because, the, of, because of these ideas. All people bear God's image. And if you, with your abilities, can love them, by creating wealth that they can partake of to do things like end poverty, improve quality of life. You should do this. And if you're a Christian, you're allowed to do this. Uh, you know, sometimes in, in the church, we develop this kind of mentality of if you're a real Christian, you take on a life of poverty and you become a pastor or a missionary or something of the kind. And if you're not so great of a Christian, you go off into the secular world. That's a that's a bad idea. That's a right. false idea. The one who studies calculus so that they can learn how to predict radioactive decay and build better bridges is honoring God when they do that to love their neighbor, just as I do when I spend time in God's word to deliver a message on Sunday. And so, go ahead. No, I was going to say, because, you know, this came up, I was doing a Q&A with a high school group a couple of weeks ago, and one of the students asked in the Q&A of like, hey, if I'm if I'm called to give up worldly passions, does that mean I just have to read and pray my Bible all the time, and I can't hang out with friends or do anything fun? And I was like, is, is that what you think God calls us to? You can't hang out with friends and do anything fun? I'm like, why do you see hanging out with friends and, and working? That was another thing, and working. Why is hanging out with friends and working considered a worldly passion? And, hmm. and so I'm curious because you talk about this too in your book of this idea of this sacred and secular split. Why is it that we have kind of lost the purpose of life and, and Christians fulfilling their God-given passions and, and talents and abilities and skills and the unique ways that God has created us and now created this split between the secular and sacred uh, vocations to where if you become a, a study calculus and go work on bridges, somehow that is a worldly thing to make money versus you glorifying God and building amazing bridges. I don't know. I have no idea why we <laughs> You're supposed have to have all the this. answers, Mike. <laughs> you can't say, I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, I write short books for a reason. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I know I grew up in that kind of Christian subculture that, you know, this is what you do. If, if you're a real Christian, you do this. And if not, so this idea of, Oh, as an image bearer of God who has been given the calling to have dominion over this earth, the way I may, the, the most appropriate way for me to honor God may be to make millions of dollars. That may be it, it through whatever business enterprise I have. The problem, right, is just sin twists everything, but he also twists pastors' callings and whatnot. I mean, we see this too. But, yeah. you know, it's typically, you know, it, you start building your own kingdom right through your career. And again, this isn't just 
it's not as though pastors don't build their own kingdom. So I think this is a common problem that happens inside the church and outside the church. But you take these secular notions of go build a great corporation. There's nothing unholy about that. The problem is you tend to do that for your sake, to build your kingdom, to find your identity and your purpose and your worth in it. And it becomes all about that. And so you begin to make decisions to keep this going, because if I lose my corporation, what am I? What's my value? What is my significance? Rather than viewing it simply as an act of stewardship where I can honor God, love my neighbor, love even my enemy, and contribute to good in this world. So we talked about this at the beginning, uh, and, and what you just said here reminded me of it is, is that, you know, answering this question for a lot of people is hard if when you say like, you know, who are you? Tell me about yourself. And it's like, we, we want to instantly jump to what we do. Uh, I'm a teacher. Uh, I, I'm married to Emily. Um, I, I like riding my bicycle. I, I do YouTube. Like, and we want to just talk about who we're married to, what we like, and, and what we do. Um, I'm curious, kind of what, what would you say is uh, maybe a better Christian response? If someone says, you know, tell me about yourself, what, what should our focus be? I think that's actually a fine response. I really do. I think it's obnoxious to say something like, so tell me about yourself. Well, I am an image bearer of God, and I, I think that's just an obnoxious way, way to, go, to go about it. When it comes to identity, what we're talking about are the things that make me me and not you. Our uniqueness in this sense is it, good. It's God-honoring. It's glorifying. It's one of the ways that we as a people fulfill the calling that God has given us to have dominion over the earth. And when you are introducing yourself to somebody or getting to know them, I want to know who you are. I want to know what makes Ryan Pauly, Ryan Pauly. So there's nothing wrong in conceiving of yourself in, in these ways. Like who, who is Mike Sherrard? Well, I'm a pastor. I've written a couple books. I've had the opportunity to have a really great friend and mentor, Scott Klusendorf. Who I, I just think that is cool that I'm friends with Scott Klusendorf, you know, and it's Say okay it for me to, to, I know I, I, I'm paying this guy back, man. This is how I'm paying him back for what, he, what he's done for me, uh, which is not working because he's already got a big head. So I probably should take back everything I've said here. Um, but it's not wrong for me to talk about myself like that. The problem, though, is, again, it's what we're talking about. Typically, when it comes to identity, we latch on to some of these key things. And they become the essence of who we are and what we're worth. The problem with that, of course, is is is, uh, multi. There's just a lot of problems with this. For one, for example, is when these things that we've latched, these good things that we've latched onto, when they go away, and almost all good things go away, the essence of who we are has gone with them. But when I again fight to remember that the greatest thing about me is that I am an image bearer of God that I am loved by him, and in Christ, I am part of God's family, that allows me to take joy in these things. And it even allows me to mourn them properly. If I were to, I were to lose my ability to, to speak and to write, if I were to lose any of these, be sad about it. I, I would mourn them. I would grieve them. But I could do it appropriately because what I'm grieving is not the loss of my significance. I'm just grieving the loss of a good thing. And so I think that that's a very healthy way to think about identity that allows us to be comfortable in our own skin, the good and the bad, and allows us to talk about ourselves in this way um, without you know, succumbing to the, the pitfalls of 
reducing our self and our significance to one or two of these things. Right. And I think that is the, the key right there is, is recognizing there are things that we do that make us unique, that make us different, that we can talk about. But is that where your value comes from? Uh, because yeah, when it goes away, that leaves us in a, in a spot. And, 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 and you talk about this in your book and I, and I'd love to hear you talk about it because I know you kind of wrote this to kind of that, that teenage high school, college student, um, and, and they can learn from this, but I think there's also going to be parents who are listening and watching. And you talk about in your book, how, how you helped your kids understand the essence of who they are. And so I'm curious, kind of as a parent, uh, how did you go about doing this with your, how do you go about doing this with your kid of helping them understand the essence truly of who they are and having this proper balance between what they do uh, being good, but that is not where their value comes from or who they are in the core way. Yeah. Well, my wife helped me out with this and I'll tell you one simple way. Now I've got young kids. My oldest is 13. My oldest has special needs. I have a daughter, you know, who's who's 12. So I've had younger kids. You, you asked me this question in a couple of years, and we'll see if my answer is the same. <laughs> I'm going to have to learn how to teach these ideas as, as they get older. Um, I hope my experience in working with teenagers and college students for the last 20 years is going to help me out, but I don't know. Um, but with young children, one of the things my wife helped me do and and we do this now together was as a as a good i think good loving dad i would praise my daughters for example for their beauty and i remember one night i was putting my girls to bed and uh i was telling them you girls are just you're so pretty you're so smart i love how athletic you are and i'm just praising their their good qualities right and and then i sing for them and even to this day my kid my girls and my boys want me to sing to them before they go to bed. And Ryan, I can't sing a lick. I'm the worst singer ever. Don't but like anyway, so I do all that. I leave the room. What's that? So don't you like play guitar and lead worship or something? I, I play guitar, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's one of the best things about me. It's where I find my identity. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. But I, I, come, I come out of the room and my wife, she says, hey, there's, of course, nothing wrong with you praising your daughters for these things. She said, but you got to be careful though, because you don't want them to begin to think that the reason you think they're special is because of their beauty or their intelligence or their humor. I thought that's a really good point. It's fine for me to praise them about this, but I cannot begin teaching my daughters that this is where their significance is found. And even in my eyes, like, why do I love my daughters? I got to be careful about through doing something good, actually communicate something that I don't believe. And so here's just a simple thing I started doing with, with young kids. I would say, I would say, Caden, I think you are so beautiful, but if you were ugly as a witch, I would love you just the same. And it became this funny thing where I would start doing it often enough to where they would roll their eyes and they go, I know, I know, I know, dad, I know. But it's, I think it was a, a fun and a healthy way for them to know you are special because you are mine. Beauty is a good thing, but it may not last. Intelligence is a good thing, but it may not last. These are good things. And these things may be taken away, you know, they may be taken away from you for any number of things. That's not why you are significant. So that's like a simple thing that I would do with my children to begin teaching them that their significance rests in what they are. And for me, it's because they're my children. 
And by analogy, I think that will help them to understand their significance in general in this world. It's not because of what they will go on to do. It is not because of whatever standard they live up to that other people create or they create for themselves. It is because they are made in God's image and are loved by him. Yeah. And there's there's so much depth of truth to that, and I think, as well as love by God and love by you as a parent. And, and one of the things that you talk about here in this book that I thought, again, was just so good is is how we, we sometimes, I guess, confuse in our culture of, of we often have this utilitarian view of relationships, right, where we're trying to, uh, where we sometimes can slip into using people for our advantage or, you know, what, whatever works for the best, you know, number of people is, is what's good and sort of thing. And you talk about this idea of how um, love, this selfless, self-giving love uh, impacts and shapes that when we truly have a love for other people, seeing them as valuable image bearers created in the image of God and loved by God, that when we truly have this selfless love for him, how it kind of strips away that utilitarian narrative of relationships. I'd love for you just to speak into this a little bit of how we see that happening and how, again, this recognition of true objective meaning, value, purpose shapes that. Yeah. In a godless universe, relationships are nothing more than utilitarian. Um, That's a really fun philosophical discussion to have that, probably take us too long to get through it but if god does not exist relationships are nothing but utilitarian in nature if god exists though friendship is an intrinsic good it is something that is good in and of itself because other people are intrinsically valuable so here's just a couple of ways this idea has changed the world i mean jesus in the first century started teaching that we should not just love our neighbor but love our enemy what a ridiculous idea, right? What, why should we love our enemies? What is the good reason to love our enemies? I, I can't think of a compelling reason outside of self-interest, which is hard to find when it's your enemy, right? If God doesn't exist. So who, someone who writes about this is um, the historian Tom Holland, which I got to be careful to point out, not Spider-Man. The historian. I was given this right. lecture once, and I didn't clarify that. And afterwards, a kid came up and goes, "Are you kidding me? That Spider-Man actor can do anything. He's also a historian." <laughs> like, okay, no, there's different. Another Tom Holland. And as far as I know, to this point, Tom Holland is an atheist. Right. But he he would say that I am, in every meaningful way, though, very Christian. And here's what he was saying: as a historian, when he would be studying ancient Rome. He would find how foreign his values were in that world. Like Rome was incredibly cruel. They built their empire off the dead. They had slaves. They used slaves to build their empires and to have sex with whenever they wanted. They treated women the same way. Babies, especially girls, were cast down drains regularly. And it was a world where Rome would put their enemies on a cross as a spectacle for the whole world to see. It was Rome's way to display their might and power and warn the rest of the world, their enemies, do not cross us or you will go to the cross. In this violent and barbaric world, Jesus, who in the very form of God did not consider his divinity something to be exploited for personal gain, rather he humbled himself to the point of a servant and went to the cross freely to die for his enemies. 
that idea, love for your enemies, changed the world. And Tom Holland, the atheist historian, talks about this, that mm-hmm. it was like a depth charge beneath the surface, and we're still feeling its ripple effects today. Love for your enemies, treating people as equals, makes a lot of sense in a Christian worldview where all people have inherent worth, intrinsic worth, and they are loved by the God who came to this earth and died on the cross. That kind of love makes a lot of sense if God exists. It does not make any sense outside of utilitarian, pragmatic, self-serving reasons. But then that just, what is love then in this world? If love at its core is something selfishly motivated, is that really love? I think it's not. I think it's something else. Well, it, it you would be redefining the word because love as we know it has a benevolent quality to it. It doesn't have the self in mind. It has the other in mind. If God exists, love as we know it makes sense. If God does not exist, love as we know it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's just a trick of our evolution. And, and we still see the problem in that. And and I think I've I, I love this illustration that you used in the book. I've used it in my high school classes as well, is this idea of this utilitarian view of relationships. We see this in movies like in Avengers, where, where Thanos is going to destroy half the world's population in, in, in order to allow the others to flourish. And hey, it's going to be better for everybody uh, or it's going to be better for those who are left. And, and we see him as the villain uh, yet. And, and there's this switch right between um, Infinity War and Endgame. Right. Where in the first movie, it's all about, can you sacrifice? Can you kill an innocent person to save other people? And then in the next movie, it switches is what if you give of your own life to save others? And that's what we see the Avengers do. And, and so we see this in Hollywood movies and we go, yes, right. That is it. And, and, and that is what is the good life. That is what leads to this human flourishing. Yeah, dude, we could just nerd out here for a bit. Uh, <laughs> but I love this. Um, I think the world we're living in right now is the world where Thanos is not the bad guy. Hmm. I, I would love to really explore this idea a little bit, bit more, not necessarily here. Cause I know our time is short, but well, if you got time, I got I, some time. I, if you want to stay a little bit longer, we, we can, we can definitely do it. If you want to go where you want to go. I, I, I really think our country, if not the Western world is going to abandon equality before long. And they're going to replace it with something like a Thanos utilitarianism. Uh, Because, again, without the foundation that Christianity provides, that all human beings are intrinsically valuable, what what use do we have for our enemies? Hmm. We don't have any use for our enemies. We simply need to get rid of them so that human flourishing, as we have defined, can increase. And this idea is played out in Endgame, right? And it's funny, I, I'm exploring Infinity Wars. Then. I'm, I'm, I've found a lot of college students, by the way, that do not think Thanos is the villain. Because again, okay, if God does not exist, if there's not a creator God in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, why is Thanos the villain? He's not, uh, sin- he's not sinister. He's not motivated just because he wants to hurt people. Right. He's motivated by a conception of good. Right. Again, what is good if there's not a creator God, if there's not a transcendent standard? Thanos is motivated by a concept of good. He is ethically motivated to create a world where there is a net gain of happiness for countless numbers of people. 
So the way Thanos is going to go about doing this, right, is he's going to sacrifice five trillion souls without pain. They're just going to cease to exist, which would usher in prosperity and blessing for many, 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 many more living souls for a countless number of years. If life is not intrinsically valuable, why is Thanos the villain? It's hard to make the case that he is. Rather, he would be the tragic cure of the story. And I'm finding more and more, particularly college students, that buy into this idea and say, no, Thanos is not the villain. He is the tragic cure. There's actually a whole hashtag surrounded with by hmm. or based on Thanos is not the villain. Anyways, I think this is what's happening, at least in the United States, if not beyond. Well, a question this, just... we don't really believe equality is useful to us. Right. What happens when equality is not useful to us? What happens when our enemies are standing in the way of the world we're trying to create? We don't have any use for them. And I would not. One of my great concerns is we are heading down a path that looks very similar to the path Germany went down. Maybe we won't go to such drastic ends, Yeah, but we're on the same path. Yeah. A, a question came in for my next uh, live stream Q&A at the end of the month, um, but talking about uh, there's a state where this person lives, uh, New Mexico, uh, that is right now, or the governor just signed into law, the Death with Dignity Act. And, um, and I think there's, you know, often we hear two different ways in which this is approached of this idea of euthanasia, either one, um, here's, uh, here's someone who's old, uh, they, they are in pain and we're trying to be merciful to them by assisting in their suicide and letting them end their life. You also kind of hear this, others making an argument of, well, they're old, they're sucking up resources by ending their life. It'll leave more resources for the rest of us. And then it'll help the rest of us flourish. And so why spend all this money trying to save their life? Why spending all this money on doing surgeries when someone is at that age, when they're not getting, they don't have that much value left. And so why use up a bunch of resources on them when we can save it for other people. And then at the other side of life, you see the same argument, I think, being made for abortion of, well, what if, you know, uh, you know, a family is is poor and uh, by killing this unborn child, it will lead to a greater flourishing for the mother because she will be able to continue in school or she will be able to stay in her job or she will be able to feed the kids that she already has. And so by ending these lives, it will lead to the flourishing of more. This family of five doesn't become a family of six and now they will do better. And so I think in those two ways, I see it in this euthanasia bills that are being passed, as well as very common abortion arguments, it's already being put into practice. Right. We already believe that human life is functionally viable, not intrinsically viable. As a society, we already believe that. That belief is infiltrated the church. Again, it's what I saw that caused me to write this book. More people than not believe human life is functionally valuable it's valuable because of its usefulness that's problematic ryan and you're right you see it at end of it you send it see it at end of life you see it at beginning of life and i think the world that we're living in before long we're going to see it applied to the middle of life as well yeah well i i want to end if i can maybe end with two questions uh the first one and you talk about this at the very beginning of the book is with all this going on and, and what you see how do you still have hope? Hope for what? <laughs> Just in general or 
for something in particular. I, I think, I mean, maybe just in general, because I think sometimes you go, oh my goodness, look at the, the world seems to be falling apart and there's abortion and there's now euthanasia yeah. bills and, and and what is happening. And, 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 and we are becoming more utilitarian and we're losing Christian values and whatever it is that we want to look at. Yeah. Um, there, it's, it's easy to, to, yeah. jump, I think, on this bandwagon of uh, the end of the church, the end of the world. And it's like, look, the church, the gates of hell will cannot prevail against the church, right? Right. There's this understanding of of yeah. who we stand for. So how do you kind of, I guess, remain hopeful yeah. in this that, while pushing that, against culture? Good. That's good. Uh, the reason I can remain hopeful is because, one, in the ultimate sense, all the wrongs will be righted and all the tears will be washed wiped away there will be a renewal of all things when the creator of the universe comes back so there's hope for that but there's also hope for the present joy is found in simple things the joy in laughing through an ecam live stream <laughs> over silly things ryan this is all the work the stuff that's going on in the world this is fun this brings joy. Right. I'm going to go home to a beautiful wife. And we may fight. I don't know. Who knows? We may fight. <laughs> I'm keeping you I'm keeping you extra long. Sorry. You can just <laughs> you can blame it on me. It's my fault. But man, even in fighting, there's joy because I'm fighting with a woman that will not leave me. We in marriage, there is this covenant where I know this is the one relationship I have that I can fight with her and I don't fear her leaving me because of that fight. She is going to love me. There, there's such joy even in that in that fighting in that kind of relationship. There's going to be tomorrow morning when I wake up my kids. There's going to be in the afternoon when I'm throwing a ball. There's going joy is found in some of the most simple things that we are just blind to because we're distracted by these big things. And so much of the fight to live in the meaningful life that we have is the fight to live in what is really real and the joy that is set before us. I do talk about this in the book, but I had, I had a good friend of mine really help me through this. And part one of the ways she helped me was just keep go read Ecclesiastes, read Ecclesiastes, read Ecclesiastes, because it, it deals a lot with what we're talking about here, where we spend so much time living in the anticipation of future joy and outcomes, and we cannot control outcomes. So take this book, for example. Like I mentioned earlier, I, I felt the responsibility of writing a book that I thought was very timely. I could be so wrapped up in what I hope this book does which it may do for any number of reasons. I may write a terrible book. I may write a great book. And there could be any number of reasons why this book doesn't do what I hope it does. And I could live in the stress of the what ifs and miss the joy of being able to write a book. That's not an opportunity that comes along every day. I have the opportunity to write, to laugh at the lines that there ain't no way this line's going to make it past an editor. I get to have the joy of getting a manuscript back and going, oh my gosh, the editor let me keep that line about whiskey in this book. And I can <laughs> enjoy that, but I could miss all of it if I'm just caught up in worrying about the outcomes and the what ifs. And so 
Another reason to be hopeful, Ryan, is because I know that with all of the bad in this world, the stuff that is going on out there, the abiding joy of the Lord can be had in, in him and in the good things that he has made, in the simple good things that he has made. Right. The challenge is to fight to live in that world and not be overcome by the brokenness. Yeah. Well, I think you maybe just uh, answered the last question I had for you. Um, but I think that's where I wanted to end is that, you know, we, we, we've talked about these stories of the meaninglessness of life without God and, and where that leads us um, and, and wanting to not only make a case for Christianity and, and how the Christian worldview makes sense of the morality and the meaning and the purpose that we have, but also that the, the desires that people have are to, to be happy. Like we, like that's often what, do what makes you happy, but we recognize that true joy, true happiness is not doing whatever you want. True joy and true happiness is doing what you were created to do. And, and so here you talked about that and if there's anything else to add, or if not, you can just say, no, you shared it all. But you know, in the book, you talk about these three keys, right? And I guess you didn't mention necessarily the keys, but what are the three keys that you follow uh, to live in the joy of why you matter? Is there anything else you want to add here of showing that this idea, like, and it's, it's understanding who you are that produces what we want, which is happiness and joy. Uh, but here are these keys that we can do to, to live in that joy. Yeah, I, I have to, <clears throat> excuse me, constantly remind myself why I'm significant. And it, uh, whether it sounds gimmicky or not, it, it works. Um, the last two years, so this is one of the three. The last couple of years have been, without doubt, the hardest years uh, in my life. Pre-COVID, um, like right when I'm getting ready to start writing this book, it looked like a number of the good things that I had were, were going to be taken away from me. Um, and in fact, I'm like literally a month away from my first deadline, and I've got nothing, Ryan. I've got crap. I mean, I've got crap for this book. And... I'm starting to stare down. If I what if I can't deliver on this? An extended deadline is not gonna not gonna change anything. I just I cannot get this thing. I just can't write anything good. And I started to face the reality of where I thought my life was headed. Maybe it's not going. And I had to have a very real kind of just a moment where if that is what happens, I can be sad. But again, I've not lost the greatest thing about me. I've not lost my ability to have a meaningful life. I've not lost the ability to know God and love other people. I've not lost the essence of his nature. I, I have all of these things still. And so I myself have got to remind myself what makes life meaningful? What is the essence? What is my essence? The next thing I do, and I've, I've, I think I have touched on these, but I have to fight to live in what is really real, not the what ifs. We spend so much time living in the what ifs and we've chosen to live in a reality that may never come to be. That's foolish. And the last one I did touch on this is what joy is set in front of me that maybe I'm missing out of because my eyes are over there. So these are very simple things, but when you begin to build a discipline around them, remind yourself what makes life meaningful. Where does my significance come from? Live in what's really real, not the what ifs and what joy is set in front of me, it does allow you to live out the joy of the meaningful life that you've been given. Wow. Well, Mike, um, 
I just tell you, I have been truly encouraged by this conversation. As I read this, I was encouraged just hearing you talk about it. It's even more encouraging. I hope that everyone listening and watching are just so encouraged by it as well. And I know that they will be. Thank you for staying late at the office. Thank you for taking this extra time. Hopefully your wife is not too mad. Uh, but thank you for taking this time, for sharing this book, for writing this book, getting it done and, um, and sharing it here uh, on my show. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, thanks, Ryan. Thanks uh, for this. And if my wife's mad, I'll, I'll send her your way. Yeah, <laughs> feel free. That? No problem. And then I'll pass her yeah. off to Emily and, all this, uh, all and this they can have a good about, conversation. All, all this joke about my wife is really now going to make her mad. She's not going to be mad, everybody watching. No. She's very glad I'm, <laughs> I'm doing this. <laughs> Sorry, Terry. <laughs> it's also my fault. Awesome. Well, Mike, thank you. Hey, man, it's good to see you. Hopefully we can hang out in person sometime soon. I know we're on yeah. opposite coasts, but... Uh, yeah. Hopefully we'll catch up before long. Yeah. So good to see you too. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining again. Why You Matter, Michael Sherrard, How Your Quest for Meaning is Meaningless Without God. Pick it up. Such an incredible book. I hope this conversation just really got you thinking. There's so much more depth here on, on what it looks like, how to teach us, how to think through this, how to find a job and how to find what you're truly meant to be and then truly find that joy, which I think is what we long for. What I know... what. what and what we long for. So if this has been encouragement, please share it with family, friends, share it with somebody, help them see it too. I do believe that this is just a blessing and, and God is really just is going to use us to do many things. And so you can follow on social media and whatnot, subscribe, find more interviews um, uh, on different topics. And at the end of the month, again, another Q&A, it's going to be fun joining you guys there. So thank you so much for being here with me this evening. I hope that you are encouraged. I hope that you continue to think deeply about who you are, who God has created you to be, who you are loved by God. Think deeply about Jesus, what he has done because those things are so worth thinking about see everybody have a blessed rest of your week see you next week bye